uh, do a message from the series we've actually been doing on Wednesday nights, but we're going to do it on Sunday morning, called Effective Kingdom Prayer Series. And uh, really, the reasoning behind this is um, I had hours and hours and hours and hours of very trouble, troubled, taxing type of appointments this week that just wore me out. And so it got down to I could do this message in about two hours prep, whereas the other, if I continued on with the Kingdom of God series, those can take four to eight hours prep. And so I uh, finally got to start on it last night after we got back in, in around 11.30 and finished uh, by 1.30. So that's why we're doing this. However, this very much fits into the Kingdom of God series. There's a reason why we're calling it Effective Kingdom Prayer, because uh, we tend to think about prayer uh as, as our whole culture is starting to do, we tend to think about prayer and every other subject way too man-centered, way too, too selfish. And so prayer becomes kind of our laundry list of what we would like God to do for us, um, and sometimes what our flesh would like God for, to do for us, and uh, that kind of thing. And prayer is really about uh, advancing God's purposes, uh, there's all kind of thinking you could have about why did God ordain this so? God is sovereign. He's working everything toward his predestined, predetermined uh, plan. If you remember in the Kingdom of God series, chapter 2, uh, when we began, or chapter 3, I'm sorry, when we get, began to look at major biblical themes, the first one we talked about was eternal decree, that God foreknew and predestined all things, that he uh, had what theologians call uh, the covenant of redemption, that between the Father, Son, and the Spirit from all eternity, he had a purpose, that, and he created time, space, continuum. He created the material world. He created the earth to work about his predestined plan. And nothing is a surprise to him. And uh, he has chosen, however, to show his greater glory to work through us. When you consider uh, the depravity of ourselves and, and our sinfulness and our finiteness and our limited perspectives, uh, it of course would be a wonderful thing if God could demonstrate his glory and grant people repentance and deliver people from bondage and uh, create healthy families and do all of his kingdom things directly. But it's actually uh, more impressive that he works through you and me. We have this treasure, Paul said, in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not ourselves. And prayer is the first step of that. Nothing happens, as, uh, as we covered in chapter one of, uh, part one of this series, chapter one of this series, uh, prayer is uh, the catalyst to visitation. It's, the cat it's that which births and establishes God's purposes. Now, lots of people speculate on uh, why God made it this. I want to give you my own little opinion, which is, of course, not necessarily the greatest thing, but uh, lots of people have this opinion. That part of why God designed that everything comes about through the travail of prayer is to always help us stay humble and stay postured toward God. Because the truth of the matter is prayer ultimately reminds us that we can plant and we can water, but only God can cause the growth. And we don't lead anyone to Christ. I, I love that phrase, we lead people to Christ. 
if anything, we get the privilege of sort of being like a midwife that sort of gets an awkward assist in the birth. <laughs> God is bringing people to Christ. God is convicting people of sins. God is delivering people. God is working his redemptive purposes, and he chooses for his greater glory to use us despite ourselves. And prayer helps us be reminded that it's God who is at work for his great purposes, and it's for his glory and not ours. I think uh, making sure that everything we do is birthed in, surrounded by, bathed in prayer is an, just a necessary uh, ingredient. If we're First of all, if we're going to see any fruit come about. And secondly, if we're going to stay properly postured toward God in his fruit bearing. So hopefully uh, that's enough introduction on why we've been doing this prayer series and how it ties into the kingdom of God series. We're, Matthew 6.10 is actually our theme verse for both series. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when the disciples asked um, Jesus to pray, the Luke version that says the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them how to pray because they were pretty impressed with his prayer life, um, in the context, he also gives them the Lord's prayer model uh, as his response in Luke. And uh, he's, that, this verse kind of centers and anchors the whole Lord's prayer model. What we're supposed to be praying, praying for is the birthing and the establishing of God's kingdom purposes. Now, in the prayer series, we've also used James 5.16, which I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard. I'm going to tell you another other word that the New King James Version adds, and I'm going to read it to you from the complete Jewish Bible. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's just part of what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Uh, the New King James added the, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man. Now, hopefully you've heard me harp on the idea of reading the reverse negative as the key to reading comprehension. Always read what it's not saying uh, so you can really get more understanding of what it is saying. If he's saying that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, then he's also saying there is ineffective prayer. There is prayer that's more spending the time, uh, more, may, more this or that, but, but is ineffective. So what we're uh, going to look at today is the first four of seven key ingredients to effective kingdom prayer. And so there is more effective prayer, and there's less effective prayer. And we're going to look at that as we go. Now, uh, the, the complete Jewish Bible reads it this way. Therefore, openly acknowledge your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I'm going to just segue myself to tell a story real quick here. I love to study books about moves of God the Welsh revival, the Charles Finney's revivals, and so forth. But perhaps my favorite one of all is one that happened in 1973 at uh, not that far from here at Asbury College in, in, in Kentucky. Uh, some of you might know Robert E. Coleman. He was uh, on campus at that time. And 
uh, got swept up into this himself. Uh, but how it began was that they had, this is a, a Christian college, it's a Methodist college, it's a seminary and a college in one, and it's in some ways probably the most famous Methodist college in America, I think. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they had a chapel every morning, and this was attended by many students, and uh, they got down to the last uh, week of school that finals was about to start, and a young lady who was a senior got up in front of the chapel and began to confess her sins very specifically and uh, very humbly, and um, and and she basically said that she'd been a hypocrite Christian her entire four years there, that she wasn't, uh, that she was, you know, fearing man and trying to look like religious before people and so forth, but she, God was far from her heart. Uh, she had all kind of secret sins going on and this kind of thing. And uh, a few people in the audience began to cry. Then a young man uh, came up following her, who was also a senior, and he basically said the same thing. And if you study revival or moves of God, you, they always start with honest, open, specific confession of sins that is quite public sometimes. And uh, what happened was the Spirit of God fell on the chapel so much that everybody got on their knees and began to weep and repent and cry and seek the Lord. Uh, this spread to where people who were not in the chapel, who were walking to class, began to get on their knees and pray and seek God and repent right on the concrete sidewalks, having no idea what was going on in the chapel, but just being swept up in the presence of God that was falling on the whole campus. Uh, teachers, faculty, administrators all had the, uh, similar experiences to the students to the point that they had to cancel the, all the classes because everyone was just spending time repenting, confessing their sins, seeking God, uh, and so forth. They canceled classes for four days. Uh, they eventually gained their composure enough to go finish the school year. But uh, the effects of that have been ongoing, as if you read our foundational books, um, Robert E. Coleman, one of his uh, interesting books is a is a book that uh, basically says the opposite of what his uh, of his uh, eschatology is. It's called the coming world revival, and uh, uh, he's expecting a worldwide outpouring of God's spirit that'll change the whole world. And his, his book is about why he's expecting that, and why we should be praying toward and working toward that. Now I say that just to say. Prayer is uh, that, that, that eventually includes humbling ourselves and confessing our sins and, and, and just humbling ourselves before God is the necessary prerequisite to everything. If you look at the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist, Zechariah was in the temple making a sacrifice. He was chosen by Lot, and all the people, the Scripture says, were outside in prayer. And then the visitation of God, uh, the angel uh, that God sent to Zechariah, 
announcing the coming of, of John the Baptist, who was Elijah, who was the fulfillment of Malachi 3 and 4, turning the hearts of fathers back to children, purifying, the Lord will suddenly appear in his temple and purify his temple and all the things that, and if you watch the pattern of John's message, John started with, with uh, seeking God to where he had a active, current, present word from God. A lot of our problem is sometimes that we understand theological things abstractly and we got Bible studies and so forth. The Lord needs to make it alive today in us, which we can only do by encountering him experientially by the power of his spirit in, 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 in humble prayer every day. Well, there's a chapter three of this, which I already skipped ahead to on Wednesday nights, includes five types of prayer. The first of which is reading God's word reflectively allows us to hear the voice of God and pray out of the will of God uh, to be effective. So um, the, the pattern is always that first prayer, uh, conviction of sin coming upon the people, confession of sin that gives to a repentance. Remember John the Baptist, they were confessing their sins, and he said, repent um, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance, and the axe is laid to the tree. Uh, so he's saying repentance must be foundational to the core of your being. You have to trade your life for God's life. You can't just try harder. You have to uh, you have to uh, renounce your your ability to please God or to do anything godly or accept acceptable to God to understand that we were born entirely in sin, and and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 32, Psalm 51 also. And uh, we receive the, the, the resurrection life and power of God. So um, um, that repentance is what opens the door to the coming of Christ. And we don't need just an abstract theoretical Christ that we, uh, I, hope, I hope by the grace of God, we have accurate Christology and uh, we're, we study the attributes of Christ and all those kind of things. But we need the experience of Christ. We need Christ uh, saying, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am present in the midst. And if he's present in the midst in a more than theoretical sense, then he will continue to do the things he's always done. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he is present by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will preach the gospel to the poor. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will deliver the captives. He will heal. He will announce the, favor, the favorable day of the Lord. He will say, as he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is now here in your midst. It's because I, he is the king of the kingdom. And where his spirit is being made known, the kingdom is being made present. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Wherever the spirit is being made tangibly and concretely manifest and his gifts are being displayed and so forth, that is where God is advancing his kingdom. And that is what the Pharisees and the, and, and the spirits of self-righteousness and religions most hate. It, many a person who has, goes to church does not want that kind of Jesus that, that becomes active and powerful in our midst. Uh, 
finally, we had, I have two quotes that I gave at the beginning of this prayer series. When all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. I don't know the author of that, but you hear that a lot. And that's a, it's a very good quote, really. I don't actually have any idea who first said that. But when all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. So um, prayer is a dy- dynamic interplay between God and us whereby the redemptive kingdom purposes are birthed and established. Now, that interplay element is so important because we tend to think of prayer as shooting up to God all our petitions. Petitions with thanksgiving is one of the five types of prayer in the Bible. And that's a valid type of prayer, but we have a tendency to make that our whole prayer life. And, uh, you know, a list of what all the people we, and, and many of the things we're praying for, are, you know, heal this person, intervene in this, are good. But prayer's so much more than that. So you can read for yourself in Romans numeral 2 to save time. I'm going to go, go on beyond there. Those are the reasons I, uh, I'm doing this series on prayer, and I'm doing it corresponding to the series on the kingdom of God, uh, just to... Uh, uh, because prayer is the key, really, to seeing the kingdom of God emphasis become practical in our midst. Hopefully we all get that. So uh, I, I uh, didn't think I could get through all seven of these in a in a 40-minute or so man, manner, so um, I decided to uh, try to tackle four. If We might get through three. If, if so, then we'll start with four next week. But we'll start at either... either uh, four or five next week, depending on how far I get today. So here we go. Uh, first thing is to pray according to the will of God. No, no, wait, I want to parenthetically read that little statement that's up there. Um, pr- I'm, I'm, when I talk about effective prayer, I, I really need you to see that I'm not talking about a formula approach. Many, many things you see in the Christian life are formulaic approaches. If you do this, this will happen. And uh, especially prayer is often taught that way. And so I'm not talking about a set of steps you take or a formula that you meet. I'm talking about an, a, way of, a way of life that's an approach, an a, a spirit, an attitude, a way of life, a, a lifestyle, a, a, what our life is characterized, an approach to partnering with God's kingdom redemption plans, his kingdom redemptive plans. Okay, so... Uh, this is not just something like you could get out this, these seven steps and remind yourself of them. These are what we need to, to uh, endeavor as a community of believers to be individually and corporately together. That we need to be these things, not just try to take, walk through these steps uh, so, so that we can pray. We just need to live here is what I'm trying to say. The first thing is this, 1 John 5, 14 to 15. This is the confidence we have before him. Reading the reverse negative, if we don't have this, then we don't have a reason for confidence. I, I meet with so many people who are timid, afraid, condemned, unbelieving, uh, for, afraid to do the steps they need to take to, to be right with God and to walk with God, afraid of confession of sins, afraid of spiritual authority, afraid of uh, their boss, afraid of uh, their roommates, uh, and so forth. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we we have the request 
which we have asked from him. Now, uh, we are living in a time where quite, uh, Christopher Lash, uh, a well-known uh, psychologist who was uh, interestingly somewhat Freudian but a Christian, uh, wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism in the 70s. There have been some follow-up books written by various famous psychologists in the last decade that are basically saying we've, that our culture is now way beyond what Christopher Lash was describing and that the entire culture, if you go back to the classic definitions of what narcissism is all about, our entire culture has become narcissistic to the point where over 20% of the people have uh, significant narcissistic personality disorders. When I uh, work with uh, the most troubled of people, one of the most common things is their approach to life is all about themselves. And it's not just about God's purpose for themselves. It's usually about their purpose for themselves and, um, and how they see it and what they want and how they feel and what they're going to do and, and so forth. And their perspectives aren't necessarily based on encounters with God or the reading of Scripture. Their perspectives come out of mostly their sin nature. So this thing, what I'm talking about here is, is uh, a fundamental thing that is supposed to happen as we uh, seek not to save our life, but we take up our cross to follow Christ, and more and more our life gets centered in His will so that we can say with the writers of Scripture, I delight to do Thy will, O Lord. And to walk with thee is not burdensome unto me, for I delight to do your will. Now, Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus goes on to say uh, the, that we pray that we are delivered from evil, that we forgive the, uh, give us our day, our day, this day our daily bread, for, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Um, it, um, I've been dealing with a number of situations recently where um, a root problem in a person's life is their unforgiveness toward others. And nothing will, you know, send you to the tormentor, so to speak, read Matthew 18, more than unforgiveness. So we're talking about like centering our life in the will of God. Okay. Now, again, I refer you back to the podcast of my, I think I spent two weeks on the, on the type of prayer that uh, the first type of prayer, which is reading God's word devotionally or reflectively or meditating on God's word in wrestling with God as you read scripture. But the first and foremost way to commune with the Lord is to, the, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart and the scriptures are what God has spoken out of his mouth by his servants, the prophets. And if you want to wrestle with God, if you want to know his heart, if you want to um, draw close to God, uh, read the scriptures reflectively. Now, people often say, well, what is the will of God? And people have debates. So, I, you know, people will pray for healing, and then they'll say at the end, if it be your will, or they'll pray for uh, whatever, if it be your will. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're casting a demon out. Come out in the name of Jesus, if it be your will. <laughs> what, what is God's will? Well, read the scriptures. Here's some words that I would um, say are God's will. Forgiveness. Jesus said that beginning in Jerusalem, 
uh, forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to the ends of the earth. Repentance. The Bible says God desires all men to repent. Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 21 is, is about how God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ Jesus, and he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God's will is reconciliation. Of course, first and foremost, to himself, but reconciliation to himself begins to work itself out as we are more sanctified and mature to reconciliation to the whole creation. Uh, now, that's why the, you know Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's not totally possible to be reconciled with everyone because it takes two parties to be reconciled. But as far as it depends on you, God's desire is for you to be reconciled to everyone on his terms. You know, obviously there's priority lists, your, your family, your, your church, your, uh, to, be right, to be rightly confessed, to be rightly reconciled, to express forgiveness. You know, when somebody confesses a sin to you, say, you know what, thank you, and I, I, I forgive you. You know, what we do in our culture is we want we want to we don't want to go to the depths of these realities. So we, well, you know, I, I didn't mean to do this, and we don't fully confess when we've offended someone, and the, and and then we answer no problem. That's a, that's the biggest one today. No problem. Used to be like more like it's okay. It was, no, you know what? You need to say yeah. I I forgive you. Yesterday, uh, um wonderful member of our church confronted me about some things that well, I was blind to and they were seeing correctly. And, and I had to say, thank you. I, I ask your forgiveness. I, I need to work on that. That's just part of being in community. That's the, that's the beauty of community. So, um, these things, uh, you know, the extension of his liberating lordship, deliverance, healing, redemption, these are what it is God's will. Now, I want to quickly address that anybody who reads the Bible very much, and especially people who are from certain paradigms or ways of thinking about the Bible, will quickly point out that God, uh, uh, that God, uh, also allows the wicked and so forth. So I kind of want to just give us some perspective on that. Um, there are Christians who uh, believe that you should read the imprecatory Psalms. And the imprecatory Psalms are those Psalms that say, God, break their teeth and God, uh, come in judgment and God, destroy the wicked and so forth. And um, I believe that's true. However, let's, let's come back to that in just a minute as we read a few verses. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. God has an eternally good purpose for allowing the wicked. He created the possibility in the first place, and he knew the outcome. He foreknew and predestined that outcome. In a mysterious way, in mysterious way he's not culpable for that. We are. Wicked people are culpable for their own wickedness. But God foreknew and predestined it. And he has redemptive plans in it. 
and I, I you know, I don't want to get too theological to, I mean, we could talk, we could write books on this stuff, but I'm just going to try to cover it the best I, I can in a few minutes. What if God, Romans 9.22, this uh, verse makes a lot more sense if you plug it into the whole chapter of Romans 9 about God's predestination and foreknowledge and purposes for his people and so forth and the Jacob I loved and Esau I hated kind of themes. But what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Do you remember that God told, prophesied to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob that they would go to Egypt and be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years uh, in the land that he promised them, he'd give it to them 400 years later because the wickedness of the Amalekites and Canaanites was not uh, mature yet. It was not complete yet. And God uh, had foreordained that they would displace utter wickedness. So, um, You know, you have to factor in that there is, a, you know, there is, there are wicked nations, there are wicked religions, there are wicked behaviors, there are wicked industries. Uh, man is is sinful, and God is in no way, uh, in no way condoning any of that. And, uh, however, here's what I would say: I would say that as God revealed more and more of His purpose, it became more clear. That although uh, the enemies of, of Israel and the enemies of the people of God are nation states like Israel, like Egypt, Canaan, Babylon, and so forth, and in the time of Christ, the Roman Empire itself was seen as the personification of wickedness. Caesar called himself Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and so forth. Worship of the empire was required. But what the, the Bible can, uh, brings out more clearly over time, you only see three mentions of Satan in the Old Testament. You don't see uh, casting out of demons until uh, during the intertestament period, the Jewish uh, um, fair, scribes and Pharisees began to start to practice casting out of demons. Obviously, demons are made more clear in, because when they encounter Christ, they freak out. They're like bats in a cave. They can't stand to be around righteousness and people who are actually filled with the Holy Spirit and so forth. So this clash of kingdoms intensifies to where we see that it was actually Satan and his demons that are behind the wicked kingdoms like the Roman Empire and the, and, and the doctrine of Caesar and so forth. And here's what I would just say in Ephesians 6 and so forth. I have no problem with praying that God will tear down the wicked including human beings, but primarily our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, but against the unseen forces, against the spirits of darkness, the principalities and powers, uh, against the power of sin. And so uh, in Christ, it, it's clear that although God will judge the wicked, uh, back in the 70s, there was a Christian band called Lamb, and it just had two Jewish guys, and they had this song that I, I saw them in concert, and it was very, the whole place was filled with God's spirit, and they had this song, he is coming to judge the earth, he is coming to judge the earth, he will, and I was like, wow, I'm loving this song. You know, there is something in righteousness that desires to see the wicked slain. However, what God came to do is God came to slay Greg Weiss' wickedness. 
he came to kill me. And on the other side of uh, uh, those who, who attained life because they, they loved not their lone life even unto death, on the other side of radical repentance, on the other side of radical change in your life, on the other side of a radical change of your whole life is a new life in Christ. And that life uh, that Galatians 2.20, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's what Jesus came to do. For everyone. Now, I don't want to get into certain theological controversies, but let's read a few verses along this line. This is very important. I might only get through point one today. That'll be all right. This is a, this is a very good point. We don't think enough about changing our center of of gravity and our center of perspective to living out of the person of God, the resurrection of Christ, the throne room of God. Paul tells us in both Colossians and Ephesians that when we were killed and we were raised up, we were seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. A Christian is supposed to be a person whose perspectives are not out of our fear of man and our unbelief and our fear doubts and our and, and our self-centered narcissistic. Our perspectives are supposed to be out of the eyes of God Himself, because we're seating at His hand, uh, at His right hand, being explained by His Spirit through the Scriptures, His perspective. And if you look at First John's definition of spiritual maturity, he, he says, I write to you children because your sins are forgiven, uh, you uh, have been forgiven. I write to you children because uh, you know the Father. You know, getting reconciled and beginning to get your sins confessed and so forth is what it takes to be born into the kingdom of God. But then he says, I write to you young men because you're strong, not in yourself, all biblical strength is, is, the, is, is through renouncing self-reliance and, and self-strength and not trusting in yourself. Paul said, you know, when I uh, boast in my weakness, then Christ is strong in me. So a young man that's strong is a man who's broken and has learned how to live out of God's strength and power by the power of his spirit. And he says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. How many of us could actually say that? That... You know what? I think I, the word of God abides in me so much that I think scripturally about everything. That's what it's called. It takes to become a spiritual adolescent. That's, and you begin to be able to be reproductive when you're an adolescent. When you get to that point where you're strong in his strength and the word of God orients all your thinking and decisions and your principles and your thoughts and your behaviors then you begin to have the ability to begin to multiply the fruit of Christ. You're, you're strong, the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. And he repeats that twice. Usually when the, when the Bible repeats itself, it's for emphasis. So, um, the purposes of God are redemptive. They're reconciling, their forgiveness. And God is calling us to die, to grow, to mature, so that we can live out of a mature relationship for him. He calls, he says, I write to you fathers, a spiritual mature person. He says, I write to you fathers because you've known him who's been from the beginning. He's a person 
or she's a, a, a spiritual mother or whatever, is a person who doesn't really give a darn about this world anymore, that sees everything from eternal perspective. Everything. Even our temporal jobs and so forth, we do as, as the training ground to be faithful unto the Lord. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I think I am going to just focus on uh, this prayer according to God's will on today, and um, hopefully this is helping us. For the Son of Man is coming to seek and to save what that was lost. You want to know what God's trying to do in your life? Do you know what he want, his, his will for you is? We always talk about the three ministries of, of all Christians in, the, in our church. Uh, you know, our ministry to God, our ministry to one another, and our ministry to the lost, right? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Guess what he's doing sitting at the Father's right hand today? He's pouring out his spirit. It began to pour in his coronation ceremony, just like Samuel anointed Saul and David. When Jesus ascended on high, having received all authority in the name above every name and so forth, God had a coronation ceremony. You, you know that when the old king dies, the new king becomes king. And later, they have a coronation ceremony. Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth was given to him as, as, uh, as, as, at his death, burial, and resurrection. But the coronation ceremony took place after his ascension. And God began to pour the anointing oil on his head and on his beard. And just like it did in Psalm 133, Aaron's rope, it runs down into the earth. And it's still pouring. It was called Pentecost. It was called, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it's pouring to the temple of God, individual Christians, uh, hopefully living in community, and our goal is to become a manifest temple where God's spirit, gifts, uh, fruits, activities are manifestly made known through us. Where people, uh, you know, I, I, I have known of churches and experienced this, that where the, the whole congregation was so prayerful and so anointed and so walking right with God that you could sense God's presence in the parking lot. That's what I long for. That's what I live for. The, the presence of God would, you, you know, there's some homes you go into, and the first thing you notice is the presence of God in the home. Jesus is still seeking and saving lost people all over the world through all kinds of Christians. And that's his will. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but the sinners. Now, again, the context makes that better because he's rebuking the Pharisees. They were upset that he was reaching out to sinners and so forth. But that's what he came to do. 1 Timothy 1.15, a verse you would never hear certain theological paradigms quote. One of the problems I have with systems is that um, almost all Complete, I believe in systematic theology as much as possible, but with a modicum of, we don't quite get it all because he's too big for that. But, the, you know, I don't hear this one quoted by, you know, certain types of Christians, but it's in the Bible. So we have to come to grips with it. This is saying it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. You can trust in it. This saying is more trustworthy than the most trustworthy person you've ever known. 
and deserving of full acceptance, not partial acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. And the Greek word for foremost is protos, which we get a prototype from. I wish I could talk about that for a while, but I'm going to... Because let me just say this. What it actually means is you're foremost of sinners too. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, Paul was a prototype of, of the foremost of sinners, as, are, as is everyone who's come to know the name of the Lord. You know, it's a, kind of a funny thing in Christianity that you hear that people do this top this testimony thing sometime. And uh, you know what? We were all born in sin. The psalmist says, I was born entirely in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And I don't care what a goody two-shoes you think you might have been, that's just our human state before Christ. First Timothy 2, God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wow, that's an intense verse. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one meteor also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, the bottom line is there's a, a phrase I like to use called the general tenor of all scripture. Any subject you're studying, you want to take uh, the verses that are called the locus classicus in theology. That is the, the verse that most directly speaks about it. Like if you're going to talk about the resurrection, let's start with 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter of Paul on the facts of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection. But then you have to put other scriptures around it that, that address it. And finally, you have to put it against the backdrop of, the, of knowing the entire scripture and the entire eternal decree unfolding of the king and the kingdom that scripture is all about. And I say this, I, I do understand that there, were, there needs to be and will be shakeups. God is coming and will shake all things that can be shaken so that those who are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken will be established. And I do understand that it, as we pray the, the imprecatory Psalms and as we pray for God to visit, when you pray for an outpouring of God's spirit, this is something you need to be very clear on. Because it's amazing to me how many people I've seen have powerful experiences with conversion and uh, powerful experiences with being baptized in the Holy Spirit, powerful experiences at their water baptism, um, full knowledge of what it, or at least a good knowledge of what it's about, uh, deliverance from demons, inner healing, and so forth, that just go right back like a pig waller in the mud, go right back to the same dirt they were washed from. And uh, it's a grievous thing, really. It's what causes you to lose sleep at night as a pastor and, and to have hard days. But the overall message of Scripture is that God came to set the captives free. First John, I don't want to steal John's stuff today. He's going to do First John 5.19. But so I'll just say what the verse says. He can explain it. But it says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think he's already covered that God came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' purpose is reconciliation forgiveness, uh, liberation of captives, 
The, the purpose of confessions of sin is to turn. To confess means to say thing, the same thing God says, to get it out in the light, because Satan can only work in the darkness. When you get it out in the light before uh, the pr- proper throne of God and the proper spiritual authorities and whoever you need to confess, their, you know, whoever you sinned against and this kind of thing, when you meet, do these things, you are beginning to say, I agree with God. I'm no longer going to excuse make, blame shift, rationalize, and, and say the sun was in my eyes and I had a bad day. And, uh, you know, my mother bit me when I was five and uh, all that kind of stuff. If you really get down to studying what modern psychology beginning with Freud is about, it's all a big blame shifting game. It's all Genesis 3 brought to the level of, of respectability because university professors are saying it. And nothing is more liberating than taking, than confessing and taking responsibility. I was a butthead, or whatever you were. I was prideful. I was too harsh with my wife. I was um, whatever. So I'll just wrap this up by just saying this. Um, righteousness is a lifestyle. And redemption is God's purpose. And there really is, if you study through Scripture, a a subject that I'll touch later in these seven, but I just want to touch on it real quick in closing, is uh, don't take this wrong. Study this out. You have to rightly divide Scripture. We're not talking works here, anything else, or a formula to earn things. But there is a place that Elijah prayed his effective prayers out of where your relationship with God is so centered in his heart, in his will, where he says, you're my friends. Remember, Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. God said uh, when he was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, can I do this thing without telling my friend Abraham? The Bible says that the Lord does nothing without telling his servants, the prophets. One of the things that scares the heck out of me for the church of our day is its minuscule vision when God is in the process of birthing great things. And it's you, if you know the Lord, your expectation will be that if you stay rightly related, righteousness is relational. If you stay rightly related to him and to his church and to your family and to the, to the, everyone that God would have you stay rightly related to, there is a growing sense of God's presence and blessing that yields a more fruitful prayer life and, and amazing answers to prayer. Amen.